For over two months now, Russia has waged a war in Ukraine. We've all watched it, uh, the largest causing the largest refugee crisis since World War II. Uh, this week, Ukrainian authorities unveiled their first war crime charges against members of Russia's military. And we've also seen some uh, really disturbing reports of sex crimes that are being um, perpetrated by Russian soldiers against uh, Ukrainian citizens, including minors. And I want to talk about this and, and with this to break down the matter of uh, War Crimes is Dr. Ernesto Verdeja, who's the Associate Professor of Political Science and Peace Studies at Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. His research focuses on political violence, genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and he's the author of the book, On Chopping a Tree, Reconciliation in the Aftermath of Political Violence. And we're not there with the aftermath yet, but we're right in the middle of it. Uh, welcome to the show, Professor. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So tell us a little bit about the charges and what you know about them. Yeah, so the charges right now that are being investigated in a serious way um, largely concern a lot of the killings and the violations that occurred in Bucha, which is outside of Kiev. There's been more and more information collected by Ukrainian investigators about specific possible perpetrators who may have committed this. So these are effectively members of the Russian armed forces, particularly of of a specific unit in that area that was operating there. Um, So it seems to involve mostly killings, also killings and torture and sexual assault. And this, as I said, involves uh, units from the Russian armed forces, specifically the 64th separate motorized infantry brigade. Which is a particular unit. Let's. Uh, I want to break down a few things here. Uh, I talked a little bit on a prior show about how some of these things were being investigated, and you talked about investigators from all different tribunals who are coming in to investigate. <clears throat> but isn't it also true that they are allowing people who are on the ground, citizens, to actually upload reports of what's going on in real time so that there can be evidence of these things? Can you talk a little bit about how you your understanding is of how this all these facts are being uh, gathered. Yeah, this is a really excellent point. In fact, this is kind of something of of a revolution in how evidence is being gathered that we're seeing in the Ukraine war. We saw some of it also in Syria. And what I mean by that is regular civilians using social media, using their camera phones to collect evidence in real time and be able to document it and circulate it widely, something that you haven't really seen in previous conflicts. So we're looking at something that's actually going to change, and it's already changing how war crimes prosecutions are actually conducted. Specifically in this case, what's happened with Ukraine is that the Ukrainian government has uh, essentially set up a website, and there's also a phone number that you can contact, and you can submit information in real time. This allows Ukrainian investigators and prosecutors to collect information, uh, try to triangulate the sources, better vet the quality of information they have, and really start conducting the really important research and investigation that's necessary for future trials if they do occur. So the charges that have been brought are against this particular unit. Um, and, you know, let's let's talk about Putin himself. Let's just say that there is evidence that Putin is in charge of all of the stuff that's going on now, which, which we all suspect and we all think, but there has to be evidence tying him to some of these atrocities. Let's just say that charges are brought against him. Does Do international tribunals have any power to come into Russia and take him and arrest him? No, the answer is no to that. This is a pretty straightforward answer. 
international tribunals don't have an enforcement mechanism in the sense that they actually have police force or you know set of people who can apprehend uh, an alleged perpetrator. So in the past, when uh, alleged perpetrators have been have been caught and put on trial, eventually you know, remanded to a court and then put on trial, this has normally happened because governments at some point have arrested the person and transferred them in some way. As of right now, Putin is very much in control of Russia. We're not going to see Putin on the dock anytime soon at the International Criminal Court, for instance, or in a court in Ukraine or a court in Germany or something like that. This isn't to say that these courts are unimportant. They're extremely important. But if the uh, assumption is that we're going to see someone like Putin on trial anytime soon, I think that's extremely unlikely. And so and, and I take it that that Putin cannot be tried in absentia. That's right. Certainly not in the International Criminal Court. Um, so the way it basically is set up is you have a variety of different types of courts and jurisdictions that can operate for the crimes that uh, Russia is committing in Ukraine right now. You can think of it kind of tiered in a variety of different ways. You've got the International Criminal Court, which is a permanent standing court that has near universal jurisdiction. Not really, not exactly. But it has jurisdiction for major crimes that can uh, occur almost anywhere in the world. So it's genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and then this other crime that's a little complicated called crimes of aggression. Then you have national courts. So you have courts in Ukraine, of course, unsurprisingly, that can hear these types of, uh, these, these types of crimes. Um, but you also have other national courts in other countries that can claim universal jurisdiction. So Germany, for instance, has employed this principle of universal jurisdiction to prosecute a a Syrian intelligence officer earlier this year, actually found him guilty for crimes against humanity committed in Syria. So that's kind of another possible venue. You've got other possibilities. You know, I can go into if you'd like, but like the International Court of Justice, that actually just hears differences or um, really... uh, uh, crimes of sorts, but basically violations of international law between states. It doesn't hold individuals accountable. So it's kind of a different type of venue. But that's basically it, ICC and then various national courts. When we come back, uh, let's talk a little bit about definitions. And I do want to uh, touch bases uh, with you, Dr. Verdeja, on the issue of sex crimes and uh, that, that we have been hearing about, which are just extremely disturbing and, and unsettling. And I want to hear a little bit about uh, what you know about the history of sex crimes in, in war. You're listening to The Karen Conti Show. I'm here with uh, Dr. Ernesto Verdeja from Notre Dame, and we'll be back in a minute. We're talking about war crimes with Dr. Ernesto Verdeja at University of Notre Dame. And uh, if you have any comments or questions or you want to ask uh, the professor some questions about war crimes and what you're seeing in Ukraine, give us a call here, 312-981-7200, Professor, um, let's just do some quick definitions here. We've heard these terms, war crimes, crimes against humanity, crimes of aggression, and genocide. Can you give our listeners a quick definition? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. Uh, and it is a little confusing because, you know, each one of these crimes, as we understand them today, have a particular history. They developed in the legal world and, and through kind of political contestation and, and things like that in different ways. But basically, war crimes, you can think of war crimes as kind of one of the oldest forms of established law on major human rights violations. War crimes refer to the violations of the laws of war, which really involves, among other things, harming, for instance, prisoners of war, people who have already been uh, detained or arrested you know, from the other side. 
It involves attacking civilian locations uh, during the conduct of war when that's not militarily necessary. So, for instance, laying siege to a city or attacking churches or hospitals or places where civilians may hide. It also involves um, the torture and the killing of civilians, especially outside of military necessity or military justification. But the key thing about war crimes is that they happen during context of war. That is, they're not happening outside of that. Crimes against humanity refer to systematic or widespread major human rights violations, murder, torture, enslavement against civilians, also forced deportations of civilians, but basically things that can happen at a very large scale or whether or, or if they are intentionally conducted. And crimes against humanity can happen either during times of war or during times of so-called peace. That is, you can imagine a repressive government doing this to its own civilians, even though there's no civil war going on. Genocide is kind of a very specific category. Um, the modern formulation of genocide really comes out of the 1940s when it was formulated by a, uh, a jurist named Raphael Lemkin, and it largely refers to the intentional destruction of groups. So it's the targeting of civilian groups for the destruction of, of that group. And it's a little bit different than from crimes against humanity and war crimes because it's directed at civilians, but it's really about destroying the group as such. It's not just about killing a lot of people um, or committing large-scale atrocities and violence against a group of people, but it's really about trying to destroy that group of people as a group. So the Holocaust is the obvious example. But um, same thing, for instance, in Rwanda or in the Armenian genocide in the Ottoman Empire. And then very lastly, very, very briefly, crimes against uh, crimes of aggression – which used to be understood as or referred to as crimes against the peace, refer to effectively the invasion of another country or the use of military force by one country against another outside of defensive force. So Russia is effectively conducting a campaign of crimes of aggression. There's no real justification for it. So is there any question in your mind from what you have seen uh, that that uh, Russia has committed all four categories of these international violations of human rights? Yeah, I think the short version is crimes against humanity, yes, Russia has conducted, has committed that. War crimes, yes, Russia has committed war crimes, um, largely through the use, for instance, of really indiscriminate warfare and the targeting of civilians when they're, you know, hiding and, and trying to protect themselves. So that's pretty straightforward. There's also the deportation of civilians into Russia, which we have pretty credible evidence of. Um, crimes of aggression, yes, Russia launched an unprovoked war, unjustified war against its neighboring country of Ukraine, even though the International Criminal Court, in this case, for very technical legal reasons, can't hear that particular charge. Um, but the short answer is, yeah, I think anyone who follows this stuff closely would say yes. Genocide is probably the most contentious question as to whether Russia has, has or is conducting, carrying out genocide against the Ukrainian people. Um, my sense is that there's pretty plausible evidence that you that uh, Russia is carrying out a genocidal campaign, and I can talk more about that if you'd like. But it's very hard to really see this stuff in real time because the destruction of the group, you have to prove intentionality. You have to prove that the perpetrators are intentionally seeking to destroy the group as such. And that intentionality part can be tricky. And, you know, I, I guess, you know, where you're an academic and you're a person who, who studies this and, and you've studied uh, other countries that have gone through these issues. And I, I guess for the, for the average person out there who looks at this, uh, does it really matter? What, are we 
Why do we have to parse this? Why does this matter? And, and, and if we can't get to Putin and we can't get to people in Russia because we have no power to go in and arrest them, then is there some reason to bring charges against Putin? Does, is there some political uh, effect or something good that can come out of it, even if we can't bring certain people to justice and punish them and put them in jail? Yeah, well, I would say for the listeners who feel like that, I think they're absolutely right. It's an understandable reaction to this. I mean, we're watching these just absolutely appalling atrocities occur in real time on our television screens, on our computers. Um, so that sense of both indigna- indignation and desperation, that makes absolute sense to me. Uh, I do think that these trials are important, but I think we need to situate them within a broader constellation or a broader framework of justice and peace building more broadly. So in other words, what I mean by that is this is one part. It's one small but very important part of efforts at accountability. There are other ways at seeking accountability. There are other ways at holding people responsible for what they've done. It can be sanctions. It could be trying to put internal pressure uh, or supporting, you know, for instance, divisions inside of Russia against Putin. There's a whole set of different types of strategies that people can pursue, and that includes Russians themselves. So I would, first of all, contextualize this and say, look, we can't pin everything on the success of the International Criminal Court because we're going to be really frustrated given that these trials take years to pursue. Right, absolutely. Having said that, yeah, yep. um, yeah so and having said that, though, I think these, these trials are really important. Um, they contribute to the establishment over time of something like a system of rule of law uh, between states internationally. Now, Everybody knows, I mean, you're an attorney, you have deep expertise in both the practice and the theory of law, and you have this really kind of long history. So you yourself know that the application of justice is uneven. And when it comes to international law, it's even more uneven. Powerful countries get away with things that weaker countries can't. Persecuting, or not persecuting, prosecuting someone like Putin, pursuing someone like Putin is a lot harder than pursuing a leader of, you know, a much weaker and smaller country. So... This is the political reality. This is the way that international politics works. It's framed by power relations that are effectively asymmetric. But I do think it's important, but I think we also need to kind of contextualize it. Understood. And, you know, unfortunately, we don't have time to talk about the sex crimes, but I would like to have you back if you can. I know this is not going to resolve very quickly. So unfortunately, this is going to be a topic that we're going to be talking about for some time. But I I do want to thank you, uh, Dr. Ernesto Verdeja from the University of Notre Dame. Uh, He is the uh, he is a professor at the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies uh, and the author of Unshopping a Tree Reconciliation in the Aftermath of Political Violence. Thank you so much for joining us on, on Law Day. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for covering these important topics.